You have a truly great man standing before you. Uh, I'll just give it away. All right, am I on? Can you hear me? All right, let me get this thing turned on. There we go. Okay, I had a chance to speak a couple weeks ago at youth camp on a Sunday morning. It was so much fun, and they asked if I would do a Q&A, just a kind of a Q&A session afterwards, and I may or may not have gotten a question about aliens, so... <laughs> That's youth group right there, amen? I love teens because they're not afraid to ask the right questions, right? So that was a lot of fun, really enjoyed that. Again, my name is Roger Legg, and I am the media director. They are scraping the bottom of the barrel when they've got the media director up here, right? <laughs> I, told Derek, I told Derek that, and he's like, well, you know, all the good stuff's located down at the bottom, right? You make a good pot of soup or whatever, and down at the bottom is all the really good stuff. So I felt really encouraged after he said that. Amen. <laughs> well, it is. It's, it's great to be here. I won't keep you very long. I promise to be done in two hours and we'll be out of here. Um, Y'all ain't been doing anything anyway this weekend, 4th of July and all. You've just been relaxing. But uh, uh, it is great to get to share and to be here. Let me tell you just a, a little bit about me, in case uh, you're wondering who is this guy standing before you. I am like, you know, in, in Catholicism, they call them cradle Catholics. If you were like born into the Catholic Church, you know, I'm like a cradle Christian or a cradle Protestant or whatever you'd want to call it. I literally kind of cut my teeth on the back of a church pew growing up, right? I mean, I was, I've been in church like my whole life, you know. I, went, I, I grew up in church when we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And then, and then when they felt the spirit really wasn't flowing good enough, we'd have Tuesday night prayer, Friday night youth, Saturday morning men's group. You know, we, we were in church all the time. And I thank the Lord so much for that experience I thank the Lord so much for those, those times, amen. They were great times. At 16, I was teaching Sunday school, and at around 1920, I was uh, leading a youth group. And at the ripe old age of 22, I was the senior leader of a church in Pataskal, Ohio. And so all 13 of us pursued the Lord, and I pastored that church for 24 years, loved every minute of it, even though there were hard times. It was kind of like a Clint Eastwood Western. There was the good, the bad, and the ugly, but most of it was good and great, and God really showed up. And then in 2016, God spoke to us to transition out of the pastorate, and we kind of Looked around and, you know, and I was like, ah, you know, we visited a lot of churches and, um, you know, uh, we, we heard about this church in Powell called Zion and these pastors, Jim and Mary Baker. And so we thought, well, we'll check it out. And they were having this conference called Angels and Demons with James Maloney was here. And we thought, well, let's go check this out. And it was wild, crazy. And an incredible weekend, and I told my wife, I said, I think we found our tribe. This is like, these are our people right here, you know? <laughs> and uh, so we, we've come, and we served, and we, we, love, we love being a part of Zion here. 
love serving on the media team. And so what I want to do this morning, I just want to take a few minutes and I want to talk about some of our core values, one of our core values specifically here at Zion, and that's being best friends with Jesus, right? We have, Pastor Jim will, you know, share and others share, we have five core values here at Zion. One of them, first and foremost, is that we are best friends with Jesus. If you come to Zion, we want that to be happening in your life. We want you also to be naturally supernatural, right? We want you to be debt-free and outrageously a giver and generous to others. We want, we want healthy kingdom families to be happening here at Zion. And of course, we want you to discover, develop, and deploy your destiny that God has called for you in your life. And so I thought, I, I love the Bible. Those, those on staff know I always like to talk about this book and I like to share nuggets from this book. I'm really a teacher at heart, but I love the Bible. I love this book. And so if I can do anything this morning, I want to stir your hearts, right? I want to stir your hearts to maybe dive into this book in a little bit deeper way. Because the Bible connects to all five of those core values naturally. It could be said, maybe, that our core values come from this great book right here, right? You know, if, if we just kind of work backwards through those and we talk about discovering and developing and deploying your destiny, we wouldn't even know we had a destiny without this book, right? It's this book that tells us that creation is, I think it's Paul in Romans 8 says that creation is groaning and travailing and waiting for the children of God to manifest and to step into it's It's this book that challenges us to walk into our destiny. I think it's in 2 Corinthians 5, Somewhere in there where Paul says that we are ambassadors of Christ. We are the legal representative of Jesus in this earth. Today, this book challenges us to discover that destiny, right? And I can tell you this, your direction will always determine your destiny. It's not rocket science. The direction you're headed will always determine the destiny that you will step into. I've never seen a person who is loving Jesus and into the word and praying and, and getting excited about community of faith, I've never seen them continue to fall away from the Lord. Because the direction is pointed in the right way, right? But it's when you get away from some of those things that sometimes we feel like we drift away from him. So the Bible, of course, is about our destiny. It's about our direction. Um, the Bible talks about healthy kingdom family. That's where we get that. I mean, right in the very beginning of the book in Genesis, it says that a man shall leave his father and mother, and King James says, cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Genesis encourages us to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth, to, to really to be kingdom, healthy kingdom families, right? Uh, when it talks about debt-free and outrageously generous, of course, this book talks all about those kind of things, right? And this is really Pastor Jim's wheelhouse. We, we could just simply say wealth with God, right? Is the instruction through the word on how to fulfill that core value. But I want to I talk about, oh, and naturally supernatural. This is a great one. Did you know this book? Now, not, 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 not this, not these pages and all that, but the words of this book, the 66 books here, your Bible is naturally supernatural. Did you know that? Think about that for just a minute. Your Bible is naturally supernatural. What do I mean by that? Well, 
So there are 66 books, and if you open them to the beginning, they're often listed like this, aren't they? In two columns, right? But probably the better way to look at the Bible is not as two columns, but like a clock, right? What do I mean by that? Well, if I was to look at the Bible like a clock, then Genesis would begin at the first minute, and then Exodus would be minute two, and then uh, Numbers, and Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua, all the way around to the last book of your Bible at the very 12 o'clock hour would be the book of Revelation. Can you kind of see that in your mind's eye, right? Can you kind of picture these books assembled in a clock in a circle kind of formation? The way it's important to look at it that way is because the Bible is literally one clear message from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is a unity. I have a study I did years ago called 10, check this out, 10 supernatural proofs the Bible is the word of God that even if you were an atheist, you could not deny. Now think about that for a minute. 10 supernatural proofs that the Bible is the word of God that even if you were an atheist, you could not deny. Now, let me just share one of those 10. I really want to get into best friends with Jesus here, okay? That's the heart of what I want to say. But let me just share one of those with you this morning. The, the first thing that stands out about the Bible is that it is supernaturally, there's a unity to the scriptures that is supernatural. Now, remember our clock picture, right? If we have Genesis here and we have Revelation here and all the other books of the Bible go around, did you know it's amazing the themes that, are common and held through from Genesis to Revelation. It's almost like Genesis is the seed of that, and Revelation is maybe the fruit or the harvest of that, right? Let me give you some examples, just so you don't think I'm making this up. Like in the book of Genesis, there is a river, right? It comes out of the Garden of Eden. And so rivers will now play an important role in the Bible throughout all 66 books, ending in the book of Revelation, right? Joshua, what did he cross when he entered into the promised land? He had to go through a river. It's not an accident that your Bible says in Joshua that when, when, he, when the children of Israel passed through the river, the waters were cut off all the way back to the city called Adam. There's these themes, this unity that flows through that, right? Uh, Jesus was baptized in a river, Jordan. Uh, we're, we're told that out of our bellies shall flow rivers of living water, Correct? And then we see in Revelation, there is a river in the midst of the city. There's a tree that comes out of that, and that tree is the tree of life. So there's these themes. There's this amazing unity that is from Genesis to Revelation. Can you hear that? Can you see that, right? Well, well just think about this. I mean, we could talk about trees in the Bible. We could talk about all the different symbolism, but we don't have time. But I want you to think about this. So this, this idea of unity, this theme happens, do you know how we got our Bible? Think about this for just a minute. Do you know how this book came to us? Let, let me share some things with you, okay? This unity, now would you just agree, not if you would, that there are some universal unity themes in the Bible, right? That come from Genesis to Revelation. Just kind of nod your head if you're on page with me so far. Okay, I got about half of you. That's more than I was expecting. That's good, right? Okay, so we're good there. So think about this amazing unity, okay? This amazing unity is achieved in spite of 
the long period of time taken to write this Bible. Did you know that more than 15 centuries elapsed between the writing of Genesis and the writing of Revelation? 1,500 years with a 400-year gap between Malachi to Genesis, or to, to Malachi to Matthew. 400-year gap. Did you know this unity is achieved in spite of all the different people that wrote the Bible? Some 40 different authors and their various occupations, approximately nine different, 19 different occupations. I love the, the book of Psalms, chapter 68. If you want to throw it up, you can. I told the IT make me look good this morning, right? So hopefully they're doing that. But Psalm 68:11 says, The Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those who published it. I love that. So think about this. Moses was an Egyptian prince. Joshua was a soldier. These are some of the authors of the Bible. Samuel was a priest. David was a king. Esther was a queen. Ruth was a housewife. Job was a rich farmer. Amos was a poor farmer. Ezra was a scribe. Isaiah was a prophet. Daniel was a prime minister. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Matthew was a tax collector. Mark was an evangelist. Luke was a physician. John was a wealthy fisherman. Peter was a poor fisherman, right? Jude and James were probably carpenters, and Paul was a tent maker. And yet there's this unity in the Word of God. It's funny to me that this unity is achieved in spite of the different geographical places where the Bible was written. It was written in the desert, on Mount Sinai, in Palestine, in Egypt, from the Isle of Patmos. It was written in Babylon, in Persia, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Caesarea, and from the seat of Rome. Think about that for just a minute. Let's do one more. The unity, this unity in the Bible is achieved in spite of the many different writing styles. Did you know your Bible is written as history, as prophecy, as biography, as autobiography, as poetry, as a set of laws? It's written in letter form, symbolic form. It's written as a proverb. It's written as just straight doctrine. Yet, there's still this universal message, this unity from Genesis to Revelation, does that not sound a little supernatural to you? L let me give you one other. If this don't put it in perspective, maybe this will, okay? So let's imagine we're going to write a religious novel. Somebody's going to write a religious novel, okay? And they're going to start around the 6th century A.D. to write this religious no novel, and after this author completes five chapters, he suddenly dies. But during the next 1,000 years up to the 16th century, around 30 amateur freelance writers, they feel constrained to contribute to this unfinished religious novel. Few of these authors share anything in common. They speak different languages. They live at different times and in different countries. They have totally different backgrounds and occupations, and they write in different styles, but they each contribute to this religious novel. Now, let's just furthermore consider or imagine that at the completion of the 39th chapter, the writing for some reason completely stops, and not one word is added from the 16th chapter to the 20th. It's from the 16th century to the 20th century. 
And after this long delay, it begins again. This religious novel starts up again. When eight new authors add the final 27 chapters. Now, now with all of this in mind, if we were going to relate, write this religious novel, with all this in mind, what would be the chances of this religious novel becoming a moral, scientific, prophetic, historical, an incredible unity that goes, goes on to become the best-selling book of all time? The answer is obvious. Not one in a million, yet that is the story of your Bible. Your Bible is naturally supernatural, and so when we give ourselves to it, it bleeds out into us, and we become naturally supernatural. Now, let me get to the heart of the matter here. Let's talk about being, and that's just one of the ten proofs. I can give you the other nine, if you want, that even an atheist couldn't deny that this book is supernatural. Let's talk about being best friends with Jesus. This is by far my favorite thing about this book. This is by far my favorite thing is that this book, by its very nature, is best friends with Jesus. He's there in much more than just the Gospels. Thank the Lord for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. But he's literally found in every single book of your Bible. I would argue everything from Genesis to Revelation shows us Christ in one way or another. Let me read from John's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll start to lay some, some direction here. John's, John's Gospel, chapter 1. Let's read the first five verses, okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So from the very beginning, we see that from the very beginning was the Word, the Word. Hmm. And the word was with God and the word was God. Notice how in verse 2 it says, he. So it equates the word with he, right? Because the word he's speaking of here is Jesus. Let's back up and read this. Let me just replace the word he with Jesus. And let's read this again. Now think about this. In the beginning was the word. Are we still up there? Awesome. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Without Jesus, nothing has been made. In Jesus was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if you think I'm taking a little bit too much liberty here with this passage, well, let's just look down in verse 14 of chapter of 1 John. Chapter 1 says, And the Word, capital W, just like we saw in the first five verses, and the Word, what? Became flesh. Hey, so we're talking about Jesus here, right? 
And the word became flesh and dwelt. I love the word dwelt. That's actually the word tabernacled. See, that's a reference to the Old Testament just there. And the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Wow, I love that. The word is Jesus and Jesus is the word. The very fabric of this book, all 66 chapters, points us to him. I would argue the very DNA of creation has the fingerprint of Christ. He's at the very heart of it. And the Bible, of course, is no exception. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 7 says this. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Luke's gospel, chapter 24 In the 24th chapter of Luke, what I consider the greatest Bible study ever, right? Now, somebody asked me once, they said, Roger, if you could get into a TARDIS and you could travel back in time to any time and any place you would ever want to be. I threw the TARDIS reference out there for my nerds that know what a TARDIS is. If you know what a TARDIS is, raise your hand. See, look, it's my tribe right here, right? If you could go back to any time in history, where would you be? And, you know, I thought about that, and I thought, well, man, you know, boy, the Sermon on the Mount would be cool, right, when Jesus was hanging out and preaching and, and taking all that time and everything. And, you know, I, I could I go maybe to the upper room when he broke bread with them would be cool and all the cool places you could go. But if I'm going to pick one place and only one place where I get to go back in the Bible, it's going to be to Luke 24, Because the greatest Bible study to ever happen occurs in the book of Luke, chapter 24. Check this out with me. Verse 44 says this, And he, Jesus, said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written, where? In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning who? Me. Concerning Jesus. And I love this verse 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Whew. Talk about a Bible study right there, right? I mean, Sermon on the Mount's great. But this is where he just literally opened it up and said, guys, listen, from Genesis all the way to present time, this book's about me. Now, let's break it into something that's palatable, right? So, I'm a big picture guy. I think big pictures get us to the details. My wife says I quite often forget about the details. But, but I think the big picture gets us to the details. And if you were to approach this book, it can be quite intimidating. So, let me break it down. Let's, let's get in a hot air balloon and let's go up to the top and let's look over this whole volume of this book here, Right? There are five views of Jesus in your Bible and in mine. The Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, are the picture of Jesus. They are pictures of Jesus. Over and over and over, we're going to see pictures of Jesus. 
The second view of him is in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are the witness of Jesus. These guys hung out with him. They're the eyewitness account of the earth walk of Jesus, correct? Amen? Amen? All right. So the Old Testament is the picture of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels are the witness of Jesus. The book of Acts is the proclaiming of Jesus, right? I mean, it begins in chapter 1 when Jesus says, I'm going to go away and you're going to be witnesses of me. And the very next chapter, chapter 2, Peter gets up and says, Jesus was the Son of God. He, he died and was crucified and he was buried and rose again a third day according to the Scripture. And 2,000 people joined the church like that. It's the proclaiming of the gospel is the book of Acts. The fourth view in your Bible is the epistles, the letters, the writings of Paul, the writings of Peter, the writings of the book of Hebrews. Those are the explanation of Jesus. So, so in Acts, we learn that Jesus died for you, and it brings us to salvation. In the epistles, we learn that Jesus died as you, and it causes you to grow up. We begin to understand things like, I was crucified with Christ. I died with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I was made alive. I was quickened. I was raised. I am seated with Christ. The epistles explain who Jesus is. And then, of course, the fifth and final view of Jesus in your Bible is the book of Revelation, and that's the unveiling of Jesus. It's the only book in all, of all 66 that actually put his name at the title, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So five views. He's pictured in the Old Testament. He's witnessed in the Gospels. He's proclaimed in Acts. He's explained in the epistles, and he's unveiled or revealed in the Revelation. Now, let's take a minute and look at how is he pictured in the Old Testament, Roger. How, how do we get there? Let's take a second and look at that. Let's just look at the, the books of the Bible. 39 Old Testament books. Every one of them point us to Christ. Every one of those point us to Jesus I really can't go any further than Genesis 1-1 without finding Jesus. Did you know that? Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning. I really can't go any further than that. And I found Jesus. In the beginning. That word beginning is the Hebrew word, the Aramaic word. The root of that word is first fruit. In the first fruit, God created. Now, John backs that up. And Jesus is called the first fruit. He is the firstborn. He is the first to be born from among the dead. In Jesus, God did this. John backed that up for us earlier, right? So even in Genesis, I couldn't get past the first verse, and I see Jesus there. Of course, 1 Corinthians 15.23 ties into that. He is the first fruits of men who slept. In the book of Exodus, that's Genesis. In Exodus, he's, what, the Passover lamb, right? The children of Israel were, have been in bondage for 400 years. They were enslaved to the Egyptian pharaoh. And, and God tells them, kill a lamb and apply the blood to the doorpost on the side of the door and across the mantle of your doorpost. And for every, every family that does that, when the angel of death passes over, there will be life. There, there's life in the death of the lamb, right? 
John's going to get a hold of this later in the Gospels, and he's going to look at Jesus coming over the, over the hill, and he's going to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I love that. And here's the great thing. Did the, the children of Israel in those days, they did not escape death. The Lamb's death was their death. When that angel of death passed through the land of Egypt and, he, and, and the firstborn began to die in every house, when he got to a door that had blood all over the doorpost, he said, oh, there's a death. Let's go on. It's the same thing what our salvation does for us today. Every man has an appointment with death, but Christ died for many. And when we receive him, Jesus looks at us and says, ah, you've already died. There's already been blood that's been shed here. I love it. So Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. I got I to gotta speed up. Y'all probably got 4th of July cookout stuff to do. Don't, isn't 4th of July great? I love that. We, we live in an amazing country of freedom. See, this is like squirrel, right? We live in an amazing country of great freedom and all this stuff. And, and, and we have a liberty that many countries don't have, and that's free access to this glorious book right here. So let's give the Lord a hand clap for that. Amen. <laughs> happy 4th of July and happy uh, celebrate around the fire this weekend and the fireworks. And uh, thankful for all, everyone who allows us to have that freedom. Now, where were we? Oh, yeah, Old Testament. Okay. All right, Roger, focus in here. Genesis, he's, man, he is in the first verse. He's the promised seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, remember our study with Pastor Jim last year in Leviticus? He's all five of those offerings. He is the offering that was given for you and I. In the book of Numbers, he's the serpent on the pole that a man may look thereof and find life for a look. If you think he's not, everybody knows what John 3.16 is, right? You ever been to watch the football game and seen John 3.16 hanging? Do you know what John 3.16 is, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? Do you know what John 3.14 is? My wife and kids do because they've heard me preach for 20 years. <laughs> John 3.14, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up from the heart of the earth. So shall the Son of Man be lifted up. There's life for a look. So he's the serpent placed on the pole to redeem those who may be bitten by the snakes in Numbers 21. In the book of Deuteronomy, or how I like to call it, the book of Deuteronomy, because it's full of laws. It is a book of laws. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, right? How's Jesus in there? How's he found in there? Well, uh, <laughs> Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I've come not to destroy the law, I'm the very fulfillment of it. I love that. I love how he's everything from Genesis to Revelation. Let's do a few more books in the Old Testament. I've got them all here. We can do them. Let's see. Uh, Joshua. Well, Joshua's name is the Hebrew word Jesus. He's probably found somewhere there in that book, right? <laughs> he, might be, he might be in the Ark of the Covenant that they passed through the River Jordan from a place of wilderness to a promised land, right? He might be there. He might be the, uh, uh, it's interesting. Do you know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? There were three things inside. The, come on, Bible students. Who knows what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Three things. What were they? 
there, there was the golden pot that held the manna, Aaron's what? Aaron's rod that budded. And what? Right, the, the law unbroken, the, the, the Ten Commandments. Before Moses could cast them down again and break them, he said, put them in the ark. Did you know Jesus is that? Right? Did you know that he said, I am the law unbroken, I'm the law fulfilled? Did you know he, he told him in John 6, I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and have everlasting life? Did you know he said, I am the king and the priest. He is the true priesthood, which brings in the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood we function in today. He's all three of those things inside the ark. Just the ark itself is Jesus, right? I mean, I, I know I'm getting down in the weeds here, but you know the ark itself is Jesus. If you took a bandsaw, you know the ark of the covenant. Anybody seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God showed up, right, in the mercy seat. If you took a bandsaw and you cut the Ark of Covenant in half and turned it sideways, did you know you would have gold, wood, and gold? Because the Ark was made of acacia wood, and it was outlaid inside and out with gold. You say, what in the world has that got to do with anything, right? Well, if you took a bandsaw and cut the Ark of the Covenant in half and turned it, you would see gold, the outer layer, the wood. Then you would see gold, the inner layer. What does that mean? Well, gold speaks of divine nature, of deity. So you have Jesus, who was with the Father, divine, in a heavenly place, who came down to this earth and walked in humanity, the wood, and then went to the cross and died and rose again and ascended back into heaven. He is the gold, divine, human, divine. I mean, even in the smallest, see, that's how supernatural this book is. In the very smallest details he's found there. How far are we? Joshua? Man, there's a lot of books in the Old Testament. Whew. In the book of Judges, he's the answer to Samson's riddle. For out of the carcass of a lion comes honey. Out of the death of the lion of the tribe of Judah comes the provision for the promised land, which is milk and honey. In Ruth, he's Boaz, our near kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's the true shepherd, which has defeated every giant we will ever, ever face. The first and second kings, he's all over the temple of Solomon. There are gold, jewels, angels, fruit trees, all symbols. The temple of Solomon is full of symbols of Eden, full of sim symbols of the, of, of the garden, garden of Eden. And what was so special about the garden of Eden? It is the place where heaven and earth were together in the beginning, right? Where they joined and they were one place. Well, what has that got to do with Jesus? Did you know he is the temple? which came down and the, and the word was made flesh and tabernacled among them. He is the one who walked for 33 and a third year where, years where heaven and earth met together in the same place. I'll give you this for free. This is not in the message. Uh, you're, that you're that temple today. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You are the place. Y'all not hearing me this morning. You are the place today because of what Jesus did where heaven and earth meet together in the earth. Well, glory. I better get moving. Okay. Uh, how, uh, see, First and Second Chronicles. Oh, yes. He's the fulfillment of the king, the temple, the last Adam to be prophesied to come. In the book of Ezra, he is the greater man who rebuilds the temple of his body after three days. In Nehemiah, he's the law read in the temple rebuilt. That's the Sermon on the Mount which begins to outline 
a new covenant. In Ezra's day, or Nehemiah's day, they reminded them of the old covenant. As Jesus stands on the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to show them the new covenant. Just for free, I'll throw this out here for free since we're here in Nehemiah. Did you know his name means comforter? Nehemiah is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He goes on a three-day journey checking the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And he begins to restore the gates. You know, that's what the work of the Holy Spirit does in your life, right? It restores the gates of your city. It, it fortifies every entrance into your city and out of your city, right? And he does it over a three-day journey. It's interesting enough that there were 12 gates. And every one of those gates, all 12 of them speak of something Jesus did in his redemptive work. All 12 of them, right? So, I'm pretty, so that's just Nehemiah. That was for free. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Esther. Oh, I love the book of Esther. He's the king who gives access to his bride into his royal chamber. In Job, he is the greater Job who loses all for us and redeems creation into a double portion. In Psalms, he is there as the one whose hands and feet will be pierced. In Proverbs, he is the wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, he's the one who gives abundant life instead of vanity. In the Song of Solomon, well, you know he's there. He's the bridegroom courting his beloved. Hello, beloved. In Isaiah, he's Emmanuel. He's the one born to a virgin, indwelt by the Spirit, anointed by the root of Jesse, who healed the deaf, the blind, the lame. He is the Prince of Peace in Isaiah, the suffering servant, the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Man, that was my water. That's a lot of them, right? We still got more books of the Old Testament. Am I boring you? Are you okay? Are you hanging in here with me? All right, let's keep going. Let's, let's, let's get going here, okay? Where was it? Isaiah? Oh, man. Jeremiah in Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet who enters into sorrow and laments over the sins that separate us from God. And Ezekiel, boy, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. And Ezekiel, he's the living creature in chapter 1 that has the appearance of a man, but the faces of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle that might point us to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. More to come on that later. In Daniel, he's the stone, the rock, who smashes the kingdoms of this world. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband who marries the adulterous bride, yet still loves her and pursues her into her redemption, just like Jesus did for this guy right here. Uh, in Joel, he's the promised day of judgment as he hung on a hung and died on a cross for the sins of the world. Amos, don't you just love the book of Amos? I love the book of Amos, right? Amos, man, there's some riveting stuff in the book of Amos. But let me just say this, Amos' name, his very name means burden bearer. So how do we see Jesus there? He's the one who carries our burdens to the cross, making his yoke easy and our burdens light. In Obadiah, he's the fulfillment of God's promise to lead the people up to Mount Zion. In Jonah, he is the one who literally spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Nahum, he's the one taking, taking God's judgment upon himself in order to make them, make us his friends. Oh, just a few more. Habakkuk, he's the one whom God used something bad for good in a way so incredible 
No one believed it, even when it was told. How many times did Jesus say to his disciples, I've got to go and die and be buried, but I will raise again the third day, and they didn't even hear him. And Zechariah, he's the humble king riding on a donkey. And Malachi, Malachi, he is the son of righteousness who arises with healing in his wings for us today. So that's the 39 books of the Old Testament. He's pictured there. Hopefully I at least kind of stirred your hearts there a little bit with the Old Testament. Four more views. Let's wrap this up, okay? In the Gospels, they are the witness of Jesus. We should have that one figured out hopefully by now. They're the ones that point to what he did. The 33 and the third years, he walked on the earth. The book of Acts is the proclaiming of Jesus. We talked about that one already. The epistles are the explaining of Jesus. I love this. There's something powerful about knowing not only who Jesus is, but what he did for you. That's transformative. That's why it's important to spend those times. It was a hallelujah day when I... When, when I I realized Jesus died for me and I gave you my heart. That was a hallelujah day. My life, I I stepped into a whole brand new world, right? But it was just as much a hallelujah day when I realized that not only did Jesus die for me, he died as me. And now I have the right, the privilege, the ability, the destiny to walk in all that he did because as he is, so are we in this world. Love that. That's even more hallelujah day for me. And then we get to my favorite book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus. The only book, promise I won't be very long here. I'm, I'm just going to hit this real quick. It's the only book of the Bible where he is right there at the title. The word revelation is the Greek word apocalypto or apocalypse, Right? And it's made up of two, two Greek words, apo and kalupto, and you put them together and you get apocalypto or apocalypse. Apo sim- simply means to remove, and kalupto is the covers, right? So we don't, it's, not, it's not like it's something, you know, we're not doing a, a Steven Spielberg movie here, right? It's not something crazy. De- a ro- a, an apocalypse is an unveiling. It is a revealing. It is a, it's a disclosing. It's a discovery of something, right? So if the book's title is The Unveiling, The Revealing, The Uncovering, The Disclosing of Jesus Christ, why is it we preach everything but Jesus from this book? What if, can I challenge you today? What if we just, oh, and I love Pastor Jim did such a great, he did so much better than I could ever do. He, he, he really led us through the beginning of this book showing us that it is the unveiling of Jesus. We took a whole year here at Zion to show that. What a beautiful thing. It is the unveiling of Jesus. So where is Jesus in the book of Revelation? Let me hit, can we just do 22? I'll just rapid fire all 20 cha- 22 chapters, okay? Here he is, ready? Put your seatbelts on. Are we ready? We're going to take off here, all right? Or maybe we're taxiing to land. I don't know. Something's going on up here. But we're about to bring this thing. We're about to enter into the third act of this movie here, right? He's in all 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, he is in the candlestick. He's one found in the midst of the candlestick. In chapters 2 and 3, 
He's in the seven churches. He, are, he is literally what the seven churches are called to be. In chapter 4, he's the door to the throne room and he's the living creature there. In chapter 5, he's the lamb slain who can take the scroll and break the seals. Oh, let me jump a little controversial here. Chapter 6, I would argue he's the four horses of the apocalypse riding through our, our very being. He's the white horse, the red horse, the, the, the pale horse, and the black horse. The white horse speaks of his perfect earth walk that was sinless and without, that was without sin. Let me just do the first horse just to kind of prove my point here. He's the perfect, sinless, earth-walking Jesus. And this rider of the white horse carried a bow. And do you know it wasn't this kind of bow? That word bow is the bow of covenant, is the word rainbow. He's the one walking in a perfect, sinless earth walk, ushering in a new covenant. Now, it's not a rocket scientist to discover that the red horse means he became sin. He, he shed his blood. He died for us. The black horse is the natural progression of the spiritual nature of his death. And the pale or the speckled or the spotted horse where death and hell follow is that he not only went to those places, but he overcame them when he rose from the dead. And what does that produce? That's the fifth seal where the, the, the souls are found under the altar. Our minds are transformed. When we begin to see all that Jesus really accomplished from the beginning to the end, it'll transform the way you think. Okay, I better get away from chapter 6. In chapter 7, he's the lamb in the midst of the throne. In chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, he is what breaks those seven seals of the book. In chapter 12, he's what clothes the woman. She's clothed with the sun. In chapters 13 and 14, he's the lamb that conquers the two great beasts from the earth and the sea. In chapters 15 through 18, He's seen in the seven bowls of blood poured into the earth because did you not know he shed his blood seven times in redemption to us? Did you not know it's not an accident that when the, the high priest back in the Old Testament would enter into the, the Holy of Holies to the Ark of Covenant, who we said earlier was who? Jesus. That they would sprinkle the blood seven times upon the mercy seat on the day of atonement. It's not an accident that Jesus sheds his blood seven times in his redemptive work. And it's not an accident that there are seven bowls of blood poured out onto the earth. That's the only thing that will redeem it. Well, that was for free. Let's see. Where are we at? Uh, 15, 8, 19. He's the king of kings. Oh, no, no, no. Wait, wait. I skipped 18 and 19. 15 through 18. He's seen in the seven bowls of blood as the one whose blood is spilled seven times, utterly destroying the systems of this world and the harlot of Babylon they bow to. In chapter 19, he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. In chapters 20, 21, and 22, he brings final judgment to the enemy and he makes all things new in our life today. Come on now. Don't be intimidated by this book. Don't be intimidated by this book. This book will bring you closer to Jesus. He's found on every single page. And so you say, how do you begin this journey of becoming best friends with Jesus in the Bible? How do we begin this journey? Well, let's do an activation because we do those at Zion. Let's all stand. Do an activation and we'll close, okay? 
how do we, how do we, how do we tear down the intimidation, the, the veil that holds us from really becoming best friends with Jesus in the Bible? We're going we're gonna to lay our hands on the person who needs it most. That's me, right? And we're going to pray together. Go ahead and put it up. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. We're going to pray out loud together this great prayer from the Apostle Paul. We're going to pray this prayer. Let's pray it together. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, we would know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Father, right now, I pray every person under the sound of my voice, you would grant them today that spirit of wisdom and unveiling of revelation, of disclosing, revealing of Jesus Christ. That when they open this book, they would see Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. I ask this in your name. Amen. The Bible is a great way to become best friends with Jesus because it's a book that's all about him. Amen? I'm going to invite our ministry teams to come on up. If you want prayer, come on up and get prayer. You guys have been gracious. Thank you for letting the media guy share for a few minutes this morning. I appreciate it.